Today, I have the privilege of wrapping up our sermon series on the values of restoration. Rick has been preaching through these values, which you can find on page three of your bulletin. And so far, he's already covered reconciliation, hospitality, and wholeness. So today, you have a twofer, contemplation and mission. And I asked Rick if I could preach for twice as long, since I have two values today. He said, no. So let's pray and pray that I can get all that I want to say um, in this message before everyone gets hungry. (sighs) Heavenly Father, I thank you for the rich feast that you have given us in your word already this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes to behold such wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in sharing the vision and values of restoration with people before we planted the church, it was puzzling to some to put contemplation and mission together. Of course, mission should be in there because we're a church and we should be about helping the poor. But what in the world is contemplation and aren't these two polar opposites? On the surface, I think you could say yes. Contemplation is giving God our unhurried and undivided attention. But it's not just a mental exercise. It doesn't mean levitating in a cave somewhere, although that would be really cool. This contemplation that we're talking about includes our whole selves, our bodies, our minds, and our spirits, hence the previous value of wholeness. It involves disciplines like stillness, solitude, and silence. It can incorporate private retreats, devotional reading, and fasting. But I'd also add that it includes long walks in a forest or hours in an art museum. Contemplation is just acting on that deep desire within all of us to connect with God. And on the other hand, mission is turning that attention to the brokenness of the world. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, God has been on a mission to reconcile all things to himself. And our Revelation reading this morning painted a beautiful picture of where we're headed. No death, no mourning, no crying. All that we see that's wrong in today's world will pass away eventually. So simply put, contemplation is about mending our relationship with God. And mission is about mending our relationship with the world. And this kind of conjures up an image of a tug of war, right? Either by circumstance or by choice, we might feel torn between these two. Maybe I want to go down to the homeless encampment, but it's really hard to when I have babies who are napping at home and who are on a very immature immune system. Or maybe I would love to spend a week away on a prayer retreat, but I work 80 hours and there's no way that my boss would let me off. Or maybe I'm an introvert and I don't really feel like spending my time with strangers teaching them a second language. Or I'm an extrovert and I am terrified of the day of spending, uh, spending a whole day in prayerful silence. So whether we're pulled by circumstances or choice, I think we've all felt this tug of war. But this morning I'd like to offer a new image. It's kind of silly. Um, but this image came to me as Marn and I were on an overnight field trip this week. We were learning about the Oneota people group, which is a people group of Minnesota thousand years ago, and we got to experience some of their daily life, which included trying to start a fire. 
it's very hard to start a fire a thousand years ago. You take two sticks and rub them together, and none of us got there, did we, Marin? <laughs> I would be dead. Um, <laughs> I'd be cold and dead. Um, so, yes, the image that I would like to put before us today is that contemplation and mission are like two sticks that we bring together, and something beautiful happens from them. While these values can stand alone, I think an unspoken value of restoration is that these two belong together. Something catalytic transpires. And I believe we see this very clearly in Isaiah 58. So would you turn with me there? We begin with a dire picture of what happens when you are just holding one stick. Contemplation without mission. The Israelites are putting contemplative effort into their relationship with God. They're seeking God routinely, day after day, looking for guidance and wisdom, employing the disciplines of fasting and trying to live humbly. But there's no fire. They're a frustrated people. They find no satisfaction. Why don't you see us, they say. Why are we afflicting ourselves and going through all this if you won't notice us, God? Why don't our prayers get off the ground? I imagine a plane that's moving forward full speed ahead but can't get the lift required for take-up. So what's their problem? Well, first of all, I believe they're employing a pagan model of religion which says, oh, if we only do these things, then God will act this certain way. If we continue to crank this crank, then you know some jack-in-the-box God will pop up. But God doesn't work like that. He can't be managed or coerced or manipulated into acting a certain way based on what we do. I think we also come to see that their contemplation has become curved in on itself. And this is one of the dangers of being solely focused on the interior life. Religion can tend to be self-serving and people constantly are checking over their shoulders trying to make sure that they're doing it right. If the purpose of fasting is to experience deprivation that you might long for greater satisfaction in God, why are the Israelites fasting for their own pleasure and fighting while doing it? The purpose of humility is viewing ourselves rightly in God's eyes, not seeing ourselves for greater or lesser than we are, but the Israelites are humbling themselves for show, like it's a spiritual badge of honor. And lastly, the call to fast with regard to work was for the entire community. But the Israelites oppress their workers. They take a break while their workers work tirelessly. I think the modern equivalent of contemplation without mission is thoughts and prayers. When the culture sees the church with capital C, offering nothing but thoughts and prayers in the face of overwhelming, tangible tragedies. Aren't they right to question us? Don't get me wrong, I'm truly in favor of thoughts and prayers, especially when people actually pray. And don't just say they're going to, which I am guilty of at times. But do our hands and feet back up what we say? Do we have the scars? Do we have the battle wounds and sore muscles that demonstrate, that testify to our love of neighbor? I'm not sure if you saw, but a couple weeks ago, there was an article in the Star Tribune profiling a bunch of people who are leaving the faith. Leaf expressed his frustration with this kind of detached faith by saying, you listen to a sermon, you read some Bible passage, and there's no real connection to your daily life. Contemplation 
without mission. Is this all just a show? Lord, save us from ever believing that this is some kind of performance, that this becomes a formulaic faith, one where we come just to perform dead rituals. I think the prophets in general are very wary of people who say they love God with their lips, but then have nothing to show for it. At worst, this line of thinking leads to a dualism where we say we love God, we move toward God with our heads, but then we do whatever we want in our daily lives. Do you remember when Jeremiah rebuked his people who were doing abhorrent things? These people were sinning against God and against their neighbor, but then they would come to the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they believed that by their vain repetition, they'd be right with God. So what's God, what is God's prescription for this hollow contemplation? Mission. Participation with God in mending the brokenness of the world. Isaiah calls us to this on the macro level, to loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, free the oppressed. We're supposed to go after the large-scale problems of inequality, inhumanity, and injustice. Phew. What might this look like for us today? Well, immediately I think of mass incarceration. It was really encouraging to see a lot of faces of restoration people at the Do Justice Conference a couple weeks ago where we heard from Brian Stevenson. I think there are a lot of people within our congregation who are interested in this issue and might be actually working in the legal field, and I wonder what big things God might have for us. But Isaiah also calls us to that micro-immediate level of compassion, which is sharing your bread, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked. And what does this look like? Well, I think it looks like last week when we set up the angel tree and asked people to, you know, please come and choose a child to provide a Christmas present for whose parent is incarcerated and it didn't take more than five minutes and all of the children were picked. It could also mean making a meal for someone in your life group that's sick. So I know when we tend to talk about these things, we feel this weight, like, oh, Molly's telling us to do all these things. But there's a verse tucked in here that I love that I hadn't noticed um, until a couple years ago, and a mentor pointed it out to me. So in college, I spent six months in Cambodia, and I was doing an ethnographic analysis on garment factory workers, which is a fancy way of saying that I got to make friends with women who sew our clothes for the Gap. My home was the size of my current bedroom. I slept on wooden flats. I ate frog legs, didn't have a warm shower for six months. And when I think of mission, I think that's it. But a couple of years ago, when I was home, when my mission had shrunk to the size of these children in front of me, <laughs> I emailed my college mentor and I, you know, I was just wrestling with these questions and this college professor had retired and moved to the Congo and he was starting a university for the people in Congo. And at the time that I was emailing him, he was actually called back to the middle of Montana to take care of old aging parents and to babysit his new grandchild. And he said, Molly, in all the years of looking, and looking at Isaiah 58 and reflecting on it, I never noticed verse 7. Not to hide yourself from your own flesh, 
So here in the midst of saving the world, in the midst of all of these huge, large scale problems, God tells us, be available to your own families. This might look like the small daily work of changing diapers, or it might look like taking care of elder parents, but that is the work of mission. So now I must warn you not to simply pick up one stick and replace it with the other. If the church is sometimes at fault for doing contemplation without mission, I think the world often does the reverse. So Lisa from this Star Tribune article that I referenced said, I can't imagine only one religion has access to the pearly gates. I realize there are all kinds of different paths to being a good person. And the question I hear buzzing in that statement, and again from my neighbors and our culture in general, is do I really need God to be good? We know the world is full of problems. I could list off a bunch. Let's just start tackling them. So I'm not a trendsetter, but in 2006, I did buy one of the first pairs of Tom's shoes. I heard about their mission that for every pair of shoes that was sold, they would give to they would give a pair of shoes to a child in need. What a great concept. Who couldn't get behind this? And I think this was the first company that ever did that. Now fast forward 12 years, and there are a ton of businesses using this model. This is fun to research. Um, with your purchase of eyeglasses, toothbrushes, coffee, underwear, beer, pet beds, water, school supplies, socks, scrubs, peanut butter, soap, soccer balls, gum, and rain boots, you enable these companies to give away those items or something like it to people in need. There's even a granola bar called This Bar Saves Lives. <laughs> so why are we here? Let's just go to the mall and buy stuff. Well, I don't think it takes a degree in economics or international development to know that for as much good as these companies are doing, we are not going to consume our way out of inequality. And in fact, at times, our conscious consumption has done more harm than good. There's been a considerable backlash against Tom's in recent years. I'm not sure if you're aware, but an independent research team evaluated the impact of that their shoes were having on poor children, and they found out that the kids might play outside a little more, but it didn't improve their self-esteem or increase their school attendance by much. In fact, it made them slightly um, more, it made them spend less time on homework and made them slightly more dependent on outside aid, which anyone in the development world will tell you is a bad thing. These companies are trying to do good, and I commend them, and I think it's wise to be conscious about what we purchase. But poverty is a complex system of interrelated factors, and just giving someone a pair of shoes or a host of other material goods will not make the underlying issues go away. We cannot buy our way into God's intended vision for society. We're not going to get to that revelation picture of no tears, no mourning through consumption. But lest you think the people of God are exempt from the air of mission without contemplation, let me jog your memory. Remember that large crowd that gathered to listen to Jesus, and it started getting late, and they started getting hungry, and Jesus challenged his disciples and said, you give these people something to eat. 
Well, the disciples were immobilized by unbelief. Where are we going to buy that bread? And where are we going to get all this money to buy the bread? What would it have been like for them to stop for a minute, to give Jesus their unhurried, undivided attention, to contemplate what he might actually do, and then ask him to do it? Or I think of the soldiers coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter slashes off the ear of Malchus. Peter might have thought that he was doing God's bidding. He's on mission for God. But he had not contemplated, he had not internalized the words that Jesus said that he was going to the cross. And I think these two illustrations are helpful because they hem us in. Who could imagine that God would be able to feed a crowd of thousands with a couple measly loaves and fish? What kind of wild and audacious, crazy dreams does God want to carry out through us, his people? Conversely, when we take contemplation seriously on mission, I think it prevents us from fighting battles that aren't ours to fight. So there's just as much danger in doing contemplation without mission as there is in doing mission without contemplation. How beautiful is it that today we get to celebrate Christ the King. Contemplation and mission, I believe, are embedded in this title. Could there be anything greater than contemplating a God become man, lives a perfect life, conquers sin and death, and now sits on the throne of heaven interceding and advocating on our behalf? That is worthy of a lifetime of thought, right? And Jesus is king. It's God's great pleasure to give us the kingdom. We are ambassadors of this realm of peace and justice, and God is equipping us to do every good work that he's prepared beforehand. So what happens when these two sticks of contemplation and mission come together? What comes out of this juncture? A bit of smoke, like at our field trip? No, a big roaring fire. I'm going to run through this list of incredible promises and gifts that Christ the King gives us out of Isaiah 58. And I don't expect you to internalize them all. There is so much here, I hope. And I really encourage you to take your bulletin home and spend time hearing from God what he has for us, for people who go on contemplation and mission. First, God says, you will be radiant. Your light will break forth from even the darkest of places. The light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, no matter how dim this world gets. As Christians, we're people who contemplate the reality that God has defeated death. And we can push forward in mission with an interior glow because we know how the story ends. Second, God says you will receive healing when you go after the healing of the people around you. Isn't that beautiful that our healing and our health is bound up in the healing of our neighbors and our communities? Third, your reputation will precede you. I like to think that we'll put Chip and Joanna Gaines to shame. They might renovate houses, but we'll be known as repairers and restorers of whole communities. And this is our greatest hope as a church named Restoration, that all who are broken, which means all of us here, will come and be pieced back together and then we'll carry that restoration out with us. 
Fourth, we'll experience intimacy with God Almighty. You will call and God will answer. You'll cry out and God will say, here I am. Are you looking for God? He is in the face of the thirsty. He's in the face of the naked. And he's in the face of those who are in prison, who are looking for a visitor. Fifth, you will be secure. God says he'll go before us. He'll go behind us to protect us. He will work within us, within our very bones and our muscles to make us strong. Who doesn't want that all-encompassing presence of God? Sixth, you'll be satisfied. You will have your fill of God in the emptiest places. Even in the driest of times, which I have experienced just this year, you will be filled with an unfailing spring of water that continues to bubble up over and over and over. Now, I thought maybe I should condense some of these because it's getting to be a long list. But then I ended up at seven, and I was like, well, I think that's a perfect number. <laughs> and my seventh point is that God invites us to rest. Isaiah 58 ends with a rousing call to Sabbath. How? Why? What does that mean? Does God rebuke the Israelites' hollow contemplation and send them on their way with a checklist of mission objectives? No. This is why we had to read Isaiah 58, all of it today, by the way, because um, that, those two verses at the end, 13 and 14, are where we come back to contemplation. We finish this rousing call to social action with the holy inaction of Sabbath. If you watch yourself from breaking Sabbath, if you call it a delight, then I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and the plane takes off. Contemplation and mission together. Mission gives us that lift. But again, what makes the Sabbath so important? Why is it here? And I think it's because it's the clearest sign to the outside world that we're not in control. How neat would it be when people thought of Christians that they thought, oh, those are the people that tackle the hardest issues that go into the darkest places, but they seem so well rested. They're so peaceful. They have so much joy. There's so much assurance. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if that was our reputation? I hope today that I've made a good case for why restoration values contemplation and mission and why we believe so strongly that they go together. I hope that you will move forward with both in Jesus, because as our gospel reading said, it's only in him that we can bear much fruit. For those of you who are tempted to draw within, to flee the world and all its problems, to circle the wagons and wait it out until Jesus comes back, which I feel sometimes... Please don't. You'll be missing out on so much that God has to offer. And for those of you who are so busy with doing the work of God, you can't afford to take a break, please do. Take up Sabbath and bolster your contemplative practices so that you can do this work for the long haul and with a smile on your face. Finally, I'd like to say that this isn't a call to do more. 
I hope that you're not leaving this morning feeling burdened. I have to do more contemplation. I have to do more mission. Because I would like to simply say the call is just to do. Do both. It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be big. But I think they have to come together. And our fires might look different from each other. And like I've already referenced, there are some seasons where my fire feels very little. But A.W. Tozer has this quote that I'll end with that I love. He says, others before me have gone much farther into these holy mysteries than I have done. But if my fire is not large, it is yet real. And there may be those who can light their candle at its flame. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I am emotional because you give us so many gifts. Christ, you are a good Father, and you have good things for us, and your yoke is light, and the life that we live in you is full of rest and joy and purpose. And God, I pray for every person in this room that you would help us to notice new areas that you're calling us into, whether it's deeper contemplation or deeper mission or just hemming those more together. I pray that your presence would lead us, that we would not feel burdened by your word, but that this call to mission and contemplation would truly be a delight. In Jesus' name, because you showed us the way. Amen.